0: The book of Hebrews is a wonderful New Testament book with the whole purpose of anchoring our hopes deep in the person and the work of Christ. It speaks in images, types, and shadows, the Old Testament does. But Hebrews says that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of those types and shadows that we see in the Old Testament. Before we turn into the book of Hebrews and read there, let's cast our eyes a little bit beyond our borders to the world around us for just a moment. Did you know that there are some 1.9 billion people in what are called frontier people groups? Frontier people groups are people that share a similar culture or language, a distinct people And a frontier people group is a people group that has less than 0.1% Christian. Not 10%, not 1%, but 0.1 of 1%. They have little access, there are few people working with them. There are some 4,981 frontier people groups, the IMAC of Central Asia, in Turkmenistan, and across several other countries. There are over 2 million of them. Not with 0.1% Christian, but the IMOC people have 0%. There are no known believers anywhere. Not only are they 0% Christian, they have no Bible in their language. There is no translation of the Bible in their language. There is no Jesus film in their language. There are no gospel recordings in their language. There is no audio Bible in their language. So these two million that are 100% Muslim, not a single Christian, even if they wanted to hear about the gospel, there are no resources to give them. And currently, it is not known if there are any missionaries or workers pursuing this people group at all. A great need. Maybe one of you will go to the Aymak people of Central Asia. And if you do, how will you talk to them about the gospel of Christ? How will you speak in concepts that they understand? That they will be able to see in a way that gives them clarity about who Jesus is and what he has done? I don't know about the IMOC people, but I know of several tribes in East Africa where I grew up. They don't even have a word for pen. There's no concept of what a pen is. There is no concept of an Apple pencil or some sort of digital device where you can scroll and scribble and change color and highlight and resize and input information to some digital device. That is just, they, they don't have any context for it. So how would you begin to communicate something as simple as a pen to these people? Well, maybe you would pick up a stick. And you would scribble in the dirt and say, a pen is like, and then you begin to draw. But you see that stick is is a frail image of a pen because it's not very precise. It doesn't have any color. And the minute the wind blows, it blows away in the dirt you're drawing. It's a, it's a temporary, frail picture of a simpler but a greater reality. When we read through the Old Testament, what we are reading, not to speak ill or low of such sacred realities, but when we are talking about the Old Testament, oftentimes what we are looking at are sticks in the dirt. How would a sovereign, transcendent God begin to share and to show himself to us who have no concept of holiness, righteousness, and transcendent omnipresence and omnipotence? So God picks up a stick, proverbially, and draws in the dirt and says, I am like, my work is like. But again, they are frail images, they are much pictures of greater realities. And this is something that we call a type. A type. A partial shadow, an image that speaks to something greater. And the Old Testament is full of them. Now, a caution here. As we look at types and images of the Old Testament that point to greater realities, ultimately fulfilled in Christ and his work, a caution in how we interpret and understand these things? How do we know something in the Old Testament is a type or foreshadowing a greater reality? And the answer is because the Scripture tells us that it is a type. If you don't have constraints on what you can allegorize or what you make a type or what is a shadow of something greater, if you don't have constraints, interpretively speaking, then you can allegorize anything. You can talk about that tree in the Old Testament. What it really means is this. And historically speaking, the medieval church, specifically in the 11th and the 12th century especially, in the rise of Catholicism across Europe, because there were no constraints on interpretation, there was a seeking after an allegorizing over everything to the point where they were able to demonstrate and they were able to really go in all kinds of strange doctrinal maneuverings. How do we know that Jonah, the story of Jonah in the Old Testament, speaks of Christ as a better reality? Well, because Jesus says it. He says, I give you the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was three days in the whale, so will the Son of Man be three days in the earth, speaking of his death and then his resurrection. How do we know the Red Sea crossing in the Old Testament is a type that the passing through the Red Sea, the deliverance by God into the promised land, Well, it's because the Apostle Paul in the book of Corinthians says that the crossing of the Red Sea is is an analogy. It's a type of salvation and baptism into heavenly life. How do we know that Canaan, the promised land, is a type of heaven? Well, we see that even in Hebrews chapter 4. Noah's Ark, figuring or prefiguring salvation. That the ram that was provided for Isaac as a substitute for him when Abraham was told to. Sacrifice his son, Isaac. A ram was given. Why? To symbolize a substitute, foreshadowing Christ as that substitute. Abraham, David, Joshua, we know they are types of Christ. They are, again, bear with me, temporary, frail, sticks in the dirt that point to an image, the greater reality that is Christ. We have been studying through Hebrews and maybe you're joining us for the first time and welcome no matter who you are, where you're from. We're glad you're here, truly. And if you're visiting or maybe you're watching online, but please take a moment after the service. We'd love to get to know you. Stop by the Welcome Center and so we can just be able to give you some information how to connect into the church. And just a tangent here, as you think about connecting into a church It is so easy to go from church to church and from service to service and sermon to sermon and to be a participant, but never actually connect into the local body of Christ where you will grow, be edified, and have the opportunity to edify others. So get connected, please. Connect with us. Let us help you. And I'm biased. I hope you stay here, Heritage. I love this church. But if you don't, go somewhere else to a good Bible teaching church and get connected there. Get connected. All right, that was my commercial, back on tack. We are studying through Hebrews. We're understanding the tabernacle, the priesthood, and how these are types, and they picture Christ. So let us begin in verse 1. Let's read down to verse 14, and then let's see what the Lord has for us this morning. Hebrews 9, verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, and it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, And of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Verse 6. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. But this, the Holy Spirit, indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, As long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. And according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings. Regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with human hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctify the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Here's the big idea for this morning. You want to write it down? The big idea for this text that captures the main theme of this text, and it is this. The blood sacrifice of Christ eternally secures us and purifies us. The blood sacrifice of Christ eternally secures us and purifies us. Let's look at verse 1 down to verse 5. Now last time we looked at this passage, but really from the perspective of God's holiness. But now let's look at the different articles specifically of the tabernacle. And if you want to take notes and section off this passage, verses 1 to verse 5, you can entitle this section, The Place, The Tabernacle. That's what we're talking about. And the argument of Hebrews is that Christ serves in a better tabernacle, a better place. I want to illustrate for just a moment the tabernacle. This tent that was erected in the wilderness, and it had coverings of skins and beautiful tapestries, works of gold and silver. It was pitched right in the middle of the Israelite tent right in the middle of the Israelite camp. And by day there was a pillar of cloud over the tabernacle that showed the presence of God manifestly dwelling with the people of Israel and by night a pillar of fire. You as a normal Israelite would have been on the outside of the tabernacle and there was a wall around the tabernacle tent with an opening that you would walk into the outer courtyard. As you walked into the outer courtyard, the first thing you would come to is the golden laver or the purification basin. And it was here that the priests and the high priest would wash and do ablutions and ceremonially cleanse themselves. And that first step moving into the tabernacle was a reminder that God is holy, that we are unholy. Now what right do we have to come into such awesome, holy presence? And to even come into an earthly tabernacle where his presence dwells requires the utmost of holy preparation. And from that, you would move a little further into the courtyard and there was the altar of burnt offering. This is where the animals were sacrificed. You would see blood running down the sides of the altar and Animals in burnt offering before the Lord. And it reminded that before anyone could step inside the tabernacle, a sacrifice had to be given. There had to be a a payment of life. Now the tabernacle stood apart and it was veiled by a heavy curtain on the front and you as a normal Israelite could never enter in. There is a separation between you and God. The priests, though, Chosen by God for a special function. The priests, after they purified themselves and a sacrifice was offered, they then passed into the holy place. As you walked into the holy place, there was the menorah. A golden candelabra with flowered flutings on the top of each candlestick. The menorah beaten out of 75 pounds of pure gold. And then over to the right, the bread of the table. The table of the bread of the presence. The lampstand was the only light in the tabernacle, otherwise completely dark by the heavy shrouds of animal skins and fine tapestries. And that reminded us, reminded the priests that God alone is the light in the darkness, the light of revelation. And the bread of the table of the presence, this was a symbol of God's covenant with his people. And that holiness and sacrifice and God's goodness and light enabled us to have communion in covenant with God and then a little bit further into the holy place there was the altar of incense the place where incense was offered and the priest made intercession on behalf of the people particularly the high priest on the day of atonement and then behind that there was a curtain a thick curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies the most holy place and not even the priest could go in there only the high priest once a year could pass through those curtains, but only after he had purified himself and he, a sacrifice had been made and he came with a bowl of blood and the lampstand giving light and the new bread put out symbolizing God's ongoing covenant with his people and then he would offer incense in intercession and prayer and then he would pass through the curtain. The curtain that was emblazoned with cherubim. The angels that guarded the presence of God. The angels that guarded Eden after man fell and would not allow man back into the presence of God. The cherubim that we see in Ezekiel 1 that bear the throne of God on their shoulders and that in the book of Revelation surround his throne and guard his throne. The holy high priest Recognizing that curtain was a reminder of the separation from God and man. And only once a year, with all these preparations having been made, passed through the curtain and there in the holy place, filled with the cloud of God's presence and the smell of perfume and incense. And there was the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, God's portable throne on earth. A golden box overshadowed by two more cherubim. And in that golden box was the manna. Aaron's staff that budded in the stone tablets of the law. You see, this made up the place, the tabernacle. And they were only able to enter in and only in successive realms and only in certain times of the year on the basis of a blood sacrifice. That mercy seat, that was the place where God communed with the high priest and the people of God. Matter of fact it says in Exodus chapter 25, God said, there I will meet with you and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony I will speak with you. But make note God speaks here only after Access has been purchased, excluding most people, reminding us the way is not yet open. The high priest only once a year. Access to commune with God in a very limited sense and only for the high priest. That's verses 1 through 5. Verses 6 through 7, the next section you could title... The priests, the first place is the tabernacle or the place. The second section is the priests and their ministry. Because these preparations, verse 6, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, the holy place, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. On Yom Kippur, Leviticus chapter 16, the day of atonement, the high priest, the sacrifice having been offered, he arrayed in beautiful garments. Matter of fact, the Old Testament says that the high priest had garments, Exodus chapter 28 verse 2, for glory and for beauty. It showcased the dignity of his office. But on the day of atonement, Taking the blood of the sacrifice, he went into the holy of holies and there shed his garments of glory and beauty and in humility then entered into the holy of holies. And there he took the blood of the sacrifice and then sprinkled it on the lid that we call the mercy seat. And that covering of the mercy seat communicated a few things the affirmation of God's provision and life symbolized by the manna the affirmation that God has chosen a special instrument Aaron his priest to be his representative in the old testament when there was a dispute over which one would actually be the priesthood and the high priest All the tribes laid down their staffs before the Ark of the Covenant, and it was Aaron's staff that sprouted buds and flowers out of a dead stick and even brought forth ripe almonds. God signifying, he is my chosen intercessor. And then finally, the sprinkling of the blood covered The law, because the law was a reminder that we have broken the law, that we stand in condemnation under the law, and it is only by the blood of a sacrifice sprinkled that covers our offense that we find mercy at the mercy seat of God, and we have access into the holy of holies of God. Okay, that's the tabernacle and the ministry of the priests. Verse 8 to verse 10, let's look at the meaning, the symbolism that is expressed here. Verse 8, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So by all of these rituals and by the limitations of access into the holy place, the Holy Spirit is teaching us. It says the Holy Spirit shows us, and this is the office of the Holy Spirit himself, God the Father ordaining, God the Son accomplishing, and the Holy Spirit applying and instructing. And he instructs us through the stick drawn in the dirt of the tabernacle, of the greater realities of Christ. But he says all of these things show us the way is not open. Why? Because the sacrifices have to be given again and again and again and again. Therefore, the sacrifices are insufficient. And those sacrifices purchase access only for a select few at a limited time, showing that they are not good enough, that they are not powerful enough to accomplish for all people. The high priest has to go in and offer sins. A Sacrifice for his own sins and for the sins of the people. And he's only able to go in once a year. So not only is the, sa- or the sacrifice is insufficient, but the tabernacle itself is insufficient and the ministry of the earthly priest is insufficient because it has to be done again and again. The way is not yet opened. And these things symbolize something greater. And it reminds us that the old covenant has no power to change the conscience. It has no power to purify the inner man. Every world religion, every world system of thought believes that by external stimuli or by changing the circumstances outside of us that we can change the internal heart. Every religion believes that. Islam believes that if you go through all of the rites and the rituals and such things that are accompanied by that, by doing prayers and such, that eventually those external activities will transform the heart. Hinduism believes the same thing. And frankly, modern secularism and humanism also believes the same thing because we hear it out in politics all the time. If People have access to better education. If people have access to equal opportunity, if people have access to equal health care, then society will be a better place. Now let me stop here for just a moment. I am all for access to education. And everybody, regardless of skin, color, ethnicity, that we all have access To enjoy the freedoms that God has blessed us in this land. And we should fight for one another's freedoms in that context. Right? It's a blessing that we can enjoy in this country. But let me tell you very clearly. That if you believe that all of these externalizations will change the heart. What in fact you get are educated, rich, equal opportunity people. That are still selfish and all about their own devices. Nothing has changed inside. Nothing has transformed the inner man. Here we see that the Old Testament covenant rituals say that, yes, likewise, these outside rituals, though they could purify for access into the tabernacle, had no power to change the conscience or the inner heart. Now you might say, hold on. Does that mean that the Old Covenant was no different than any other world religion? No, not at all. For one thing, under the Old Covenant, they worship the one true God, Yahweh. Number two, every other world religion believes that by these external actions, you can transform the heart and therefore be found acceptable with God. The Old Covenant actually teaches the opposite. All of the rituals, all of these external activities, the purification, the sacrifices, they constantly emphasized: you cannot be good enough. You are not good enough. You cannot work your way into heaven. This is not enough. You are not enough. There is and there must be something greater that is coming. There is someone that must be able to take care of it because you never can. That's the story of the whole Old Testament that man cannot do it but but there's someone coming over the horizon who can and now we come to verse 11 that someone that's something better that transforms us from the inside out verse 11 For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, verse 14, notice his exclamation, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Verse 11, clear there at the beginning, the word but. Three letters in English, two letters in Greek, day. It's a logical contrastive. In other words, because of this, this is what the Old Testament, the Old Covenant accomplished, but it was insufficient, and it reminds us that we're constantly insufficient. Verse 11, in contrast to that, we're going to show you the more excellent, the more perfect, the more complete work of the one who is able to transform us and perfect our conscience, secure an eternal redemption. And that person is Jesus Christ. And the book of Hebrews has been showing us that he is a qualified high priest able to enter. He's of the right lineage. He's a Melchizedekian priest. He has the right qualities. He is a king, priest of peace, who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He is pure and unblemished. And here we have Jesus Christ arrayed in glory and beauty, Son of God, transcendent Son of Man who steps down into our existence and He walks figuratively into that courtyard. But He doesn't need to purify Himself because He is holy, holy, holy God. He brings nothing for his sins because he is perfect. His life on earth demonstrated that. And then to the altar he comes. Not with the sacrifice of an angelic animal or an angel or anything else. But then this high priest lays himself down on the altar. And there at the cross, the altar of sacrifice, he bleeds and dies. But three days later he arose. And the sacrifice of his blood, he then carries into not an earthly sanctuary, but into a heavenly sanctuary, not made with hands. And he takes his blood and into the holy place of heaven, where we are told, like that lampstand, Jesus said, I am the light of the world, I am the bread of life. And he stands there before the curtain and intercedes on our behalf with his blood, and then with his hands. And we saw this at the cross. Jesus, the Son of God, takes His hands and He rips the curtain down from top to bottom. That barrier that separates man from God. And then in the holy of holies of heaven, He takes His blood, not the blood of calves and goats who only sanctify the external, but rather He takes His own blood, the holy blood of God Himself, and there, sprinkles it on the mercy seat of heaven, and it says, not for just a little bit of time or just for some, but once and for all, he satisfies the requirements of the law. He washes away sin for all peoples, for all time. No other sacrifices needed. No other rituals needed. It is done. And then he turns around and he sits down on his throne and says, it is finished. And then... You can see, see, the curtain is is ripped open. And all who believe in the sacrifice of Christ, there is now a clear line of sight all the way out. And now Jesus says, you who believe in me and are covered by my blood, you are no longer outside, but you can come inside, come into the very presence of my Father, and you can be seated in the heavenlies, Paul says in Ephesians 1, with me in heaven right now. All the way in. If the blood of bulls and goats in an earthly sanctuary can bring one man in once a year. How much more the holy unblemished blood of Christ eternally secures our redemption. Eternally purifies us so that we can be seated in the holy of holies of God for all eternity. And nothing can take you out of that. Nothing can remove you from there. This is the work of the blood offering of Christ. That he purifies us. He makes us holy. Not on what we do, but everything he did. How much more, verse 14, will the blood of Christ, who through the Spirit Through the power of God, he offered himself. Jesus offered himself. You see, all of those Old Testament sacrifices, none of those were willing sacrifice. No lamb or goat or bull said, I volunteer to be slaughtered. Didn't happen. All unwilling. So how much more one who is God, who through the power of God, in complete willing self-sacrifice, In his unblemished, complete, holy state. Give us himself. Not to Satan. Christ does not die to satisfy Satan. Satan is a small player who is defeated at the cross. Jesus gives himself to his father. It says he gave himself without blemish to God. And God says, the father says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And on the third day, Christ rose in power declaring that the sacrifice was acceptable to God. How much more would such a sacrifice not just transform you from the outside, but totally transform you from the inside and make you new to serve God? the living God. Do you notice the sequence here? God transforms you and now serve him. Every other world religion, every other world system of thought says, serve God and maybe you'll be transformed. The God of the Bible says, believe in my son who did the work for you and be transformed. Affections, passions, positions before the Lord are all radically changed and woven into your being. And out of that new identity, now we can serve and we can go to the IMAC people. Where before I would never give my life for the cause of Christ. My life is too important. But now, because I've been transformed and God is everything to me, I lay my life down and say, I will go, even if it costs my life. Jesus Christ's blood sacrifice alone is able to purify us and eternally redeem us. The big idea? The blood of Christ eternally secures and purifies us. And if this is true of you, go forth and serve the living God. If you're still trying to work your way into the Holy of Holies, you will never get there. Come talk with me after the service. Talk to someone here. Let us show you from God's word and say, this is how you can be saved. There's no hidden knowledge. Matter of fact, if you want to do that right now and be saved, then believe you are a sinner. You're on the outside. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, rose again the third day, and if you believe in him as your savior, you will be saved. That's the gospel. Beautiful, isn't it? Do you believe it? Would you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, please draw someone today it says, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. For those of us who have believed, help us now to serve the living God, knowing that our destiny is secure in the holy of holies of heaven. That according to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 to 2, that we have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ the blood of our high priest who shed his garments of glory and in humility went to the cross so that we might have life. If you have any questions about where you stand before the Lord, please come talk to me after the service. I'll be down here at the front. I'd love to talk with you. One of my other pastors will also be down here. Other men and women from our church would love to show you from God's word. Or if you just want us to pray with you. you have questions just burdens on your heart, please come talk with us. Heavenly Father, we commit all these things into your hand. Be glorified in us today. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.